0: Alabama Amazon workers have voted on whether to unionize.
1: Last week and over the weekend, you saw Amazon specifically punching at particular
2: senators.
0: The Twitter fight continues, and what a lot of people are calling Amazon's confrontational Twitter offensive. Convention
2: or PR wisdom is that this was a bad idea. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. Here are the media stories we're examining this week message in a bottle amazon goes under the microscope over working conditions and a union's drive to get employees organized the world health organization releases a report on the origins of the coronavirus findings that raise as many questions as they answer well-read talking heads and the bookshelves that just ooze credibility plus A traffic jam in the Suez Canal.
3: Suez Gulf looking pretty heavy, nowhere
2: going anywhere. We have a full report. We begin with one of the world's biggest technology-driven companies, Amazon, and the workers in Alabama who have just voted on whether or not to unionize. The votes which were mailed in due to the pandemic are still being counted. But if those employees choose to join a union, Theirs will be the first Amazon warehouse in the U.S. to do so, and could well create a domino effect. The stakes are high. We're talking about a trillion-dollar company, and the battle lines have been drawn in the U.S. news media. Prior to the vote, stories were circulating about oppressive working conditions at Amazon, accounts contesting the company's line that it's a generous, caring employer. When senators like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren took to social media to show their support for the unionizing effort, The pushback from Amazon on Twitter came across as snide, personal, and did more damage to the company than it did to its political opponents. An example of Amazon's vaunted PR team failing to deliver. Our starting point this week is Bessemer, Alabama.
4: Amazon is expected to push back to try to keep unions out.
2: Major news stories can be complicated. This one involves a trillion dollar corporation, Amazon. It touches on employees' rights, the responsibilities of the consumer, the value of labor unions, and the ethics of workplace surveillance. Unfortunately, for Amazon and its PR machine, other aspects of the story are much easier to comprehend, much more difficult to spin. People, even Amazon employees, fearful of losing their jobs, need bathroom breaks. Back in
5: 2015, I set out to write a book on low-paid jobs in Britain. but so I ended up at Amazon because they were recruiting at the time, and every time there was this meeting, an Amazon manager would be admonishing us to speed up because they said, you know, we're clocking up too much idle time. There were no stoppages, um, only when I went to the bathroom. And then one day, you know, during my shift, I was walking down a aisle in the, in, in the warehouse, And there's, you know, a bottle of of liquid on the shelf. And, you know, the penny dropped. Someone had done that because they were afraid to take a bathroom break. And I can say unequivocally that that absolutely happens. It happens
6: so frequently that, you know, documents leaked to me from folks in Amazon shows that they have it memorialized in a formal process is saying here's the punishment if you're caught leaving a bottle of urine in your car we need to stop this from happening and you know these memos show that happening not you know once in a while but so frequently that they had to bring this up with employees so that the public doesn't see and know what's going on
2: for years amazon's workers have complained about harsh employment practices punishments for sick days pay cuts for showing up late and being under constant surveillance Those stories are back in the news now, largely because of the drive to unionize the nearly 6,000 employees at this warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. Amazon has fought hard to keep unions out of its American operations. And when Democratic Senator Bernie Sanders tweeted his support for the unionizing effort, the company took the gloves off on Twitter. Usually, Amazon's Twitter game is measured carefully conducted. Not this time.
0: Dave Clark, who is the CEO of Worldwide Consumer at Amazon, he started tweeting in response to news that Bernie Sanders was going to visit Bessemer to support the workers. He often calls Amazon the Bernie Sanders of employers. Um, by which he means, you know, it's a progressive workplace and they actually deliver a progressive workplace. So they're different from Sanders, that Sanders, you know, is all talk, no action. Um, He mentioned that Amazon workers have healthcare and that they have a $15 minimum wage. Um, And so it really seems to be Bernie Sanders' visit to Bessemer that set off um, this sort of meltdown.
3: If these tweets had come out, maybe even in 2019, like, I, I don't know if they would be getting as much attention as they are right at this exact moment people are kind of looking at these now, with sort of new eyes. Before pandemic, the thought of the worker at Amazon was maybe not as center stage as they are now. I think that is probably the big difference now. Also, the unionizing effort. I mean, like, that just brings another layer of, like, uh, attention to them.
6: I I can't think of a better example of an own goal than um, what Amazon has done. And what the folks in the comms will tell me, is that um, they didn't actually do this. They would never have signed off on it. There's someone at the executive level that went um, around behind them and was able to ram this stuff through. According to Vox, that was uh, the CEO of Amazon, Jeff Bezos himself, that did it.
2: Next, we are honored to welcome American entrepreneur, investor, philanthropist, and owner of the Washington Post, Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos is the wealthiest person in the world. And this pandemic, which has seen Amazon's profits nearly double, has cemented his place at the top of the rich list. His company has always devoted a lot of money to image management.
6: To all of our Amazon retail heroes, on the floor, in the air, and behind the wheel, we want to thank you.
2: Amazon spent $11 billion on advertising alone last year, more than any other company.
5: Amazon has been a subject in uh, political debate.
2: uh, Its head of communications is Jay Carney. Barack Obama's former press secretary. He's as politically connected as they come. In its dealings with the media, Amazon is not shy about throwing its weight around.
3: So when I first joined uh, the Washington Business Journal, I got to talk to one of my uh, fellow reporters and they were telling me, don't let Amazon tell you what goes in your story. Sometimes the company will reach out to you. They'll ask to talk off record and then they will proceed to tell you why your story is wrong. And that you need to change your story. And of course, you you know, you'll be off record and you'll be like, well, can I get a quote to update my story? And it's like, no, absolutely not. And if you don't change it, they will go around and tell people that your story is wrong.
2: There's a new book out shedding light on brutal working conditions at
5: Amazon fulfillment centers. When my book came out, Amazon would uh, try to discredit me. So they put out these statements saying that I just did this book for publicity. Not saying, you know, that we've changed our practices or whatever. They wouldn't give an inch. As the knowledge of Amazon's fairly bad working practices has spread, Amazon have become more aggressive in in terms of pushing back against that.
0: So for example, one key thing that Amazon really wants people to do um, when writing about the company is compare its wage, which is $15 an hour as the starting wage, um, to fast food jobs, which you know are often minimum wage, which in the United States, you know, is right around $7 an hour. In fact, they're a warehouse and logistics company. Um, and they pay less than average for their industry, so they pay below what other warehouses pay. Meanwhile, the big news of the morning, we just told you Amazon is raising the minimum wage to $15 for it's it. has been frustrating to see people really swallow some of Amazon's PR lines. We at the Birmingham team have a great leadership.
2: Amazon also pushes its messages through TV ads. It's created an anti-union website for its employees and bombards them with text messages telling them to vote no. The company declined to be interviewed, but provided us with this statement. Amazon already offers what unions are requesting for employees, industry-leading pay, comprehensive benefits, opportunities for career growth, the ability to communicate directly with the leadership of the company nowhere in its statement did Amazon acknowledge the grievances employees have raised about their work environment and the surveillance technology used to monitor their every move. As for their ability to communicate with management, reporters who deal with Amazon employees say that's not how they see it on the warehouse floor.
0: This is a classic line every company uses when trying to fight a union. They paint the union as a third party that's gonna come between you and the manager, right?
2: Working people has been devalued for a long time.
0: So Jennifer Bates is one of the workers at the Bessemer warehouse who has been leading the union effort. And Jennifer said, you know, we don't have a relationship with management. We have a relationship with an algorithm. Amazon workers in these facilities um, are tracked through through apps down to the very second.
6: One of the most disturbing Things that I found in interviewing, particularly drivers, who were describing an extremely complex um, regime of, of tools and gadgets to monitor very closely what employees are doing, when they're doing it. Just an extraordinary degree of scrutiny on these workers that I don't think we've ever seen.
2: Sometimes convenience can be mistaken for progress. The technology that has made Amazon what it is, the apps and algorithms that track its shipments and its employees work for consumers. When the company sends out its messages across the media spectrum.
7: Amazon's confrontational Twitter
2: offensive. Trying to win the battle for hearts, minds, and money. That's what it's counting on, that customers will put their own needs first and not the conditions that Amazon workers must endure in order to deliver.
3: It's very easy for someone who, you know, perhaps is in the upper middle class in the United States to simply say, I will not shop at Amazon. But it's probably much harder for someone who is in the lower class to do this. That's a luxury in many cases.
6: The thing is, we can structure industry in such a way that uh, it can be both responsive and relatively humane. And that's really the debate that people are having now is surely there is some sensible middle ground where they can continue to, you know, be responsive to consumer demands and and, and treat their employees like human beings.
0: So the idea that like, you know, if a consumer just stopped buying uh, their yoga outfits on Amazon, you know, things would be better and we should blame that person for these working conditions, I think is just false. Um, Consumers are very downstream from the business model that Amazon has perfected and propagated. um, And, you know, they're the ones who are responsible for this sort of just in time production um, and they get people hooked on it. And so it starts and it stops with Amazon, the company itself.
2: This past week, the World Health Organization released the findings of an investigation into the origins of the coronavirus. Just how free were WHO investigators to do their work in China? How reliable are their findings? Minakshi Ravi's been following this story. Meena, first off, on the origins of COVID-19, are we any closer to an answer?
7: In a word, No. The WHO report says the virus most likely jumped from animals to humans, and it refers specifically to the wildlife food markets in the city of Wuhan. It also says it's extremely unlikely that the virus was leaked from a lab. The report does come with caveats, though. The WHO's director general says that investigators faced issues with access and independence when they were working in China and that there is further investigation required. Fourteen countries led by the United States have also questioned the credibility of the report. And that narrative of doubt has dominated media coverage worldwide.
2: And what kind of reaction have you seen from Beijing?
7: The Chinese government seems happy with the report. They say it indicates China's openness to the world. Beijing is less satisfied with the global response. The spokesperson for the Chinese Foreign Ministry has tweeted asking when the United States will show the same level of transparency that China has done, hinting not for the first time that the virus originated in the United States. The tone on Chinese media has been similar. The China Daily put out a piece in which they said, quote, Western politicians and media outlets are intent on making the research into the origins of the pandemic a political tool to serve their purpose of impugning the integrity of Chinese authorities.
2: Then there's the story of the BBC reporter who had to leave China allegedly over concerns for his safety. What are the details there?
7: The reporter is the BBC's John Sudworth. He's been in China for nine years and now has had to relocate to Taiwan. The BBC hasn't specified exactly why he had to leave, but it did say that his reporting has exposed truths that the Chinese authorities did not want the world to know. Sudworth has produced reports on the treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. These are reports that the Chinese government has not been happy
3: with. We're turned back at checkpoints. We're okay. We're okay. Stopped from filming.
2: We're okay. Questioned and followed.
7: Sudward says he and his team have faced obstruction and intimidation wherever they've tried to film.
2: Another example of the openness that Beijing's been talking about.
7: The message doesn't exactly square, does it?
2: Not really. Okay, thanks, Meena. With the pandemic forcing so many of us to work from home, all kinds of talking heads from pundits to politicians have had to redefine their natural environments. So you've been seeing a lot of bookshelves. They're the perfect solution. They provide a little visual texture, they don't distract, and they create the impression, whether accurate or not, that the talking head has actually read the books, maybe even written some of them. Creating a backdrop can be an exercise in self-branding. It sends a message, and it speaks to your alleged credibility before you utter a word. This book-flaunting has led to a new genre of media critique, bookshelf analysis. It was inevitable. The Listening Post's Flo Phillips now on judging a person, including a colleague, by their bookish backdrop.
4: It's an irony for the ages how this pandemic, this time of unprecedented isolation, has forced us virtually to invite strangers into our homes.
8: I have Zoom meetings with my uh, students. I I broadcast my BBC radio programmes from here and and interviews and presentations and, and, and things all from here.
4: Making us consider things about our domestic spaces we've never thought of before.
5: I'm no expert, but trying to
4: ensure that you see there's a mirror behind me that you can't then see like my boxes of cereal. For interviewers and interviewees, webinar participants and writers, suddenly it's all about the bookshelf
8: let me show you all the bookshelves okay there you go up to the ceiling
1: a lot of people actually work in studies and have home studies uh, and particularly the kinds of experts that are called upon in television uh, interviews to talk about areas of their uh, concern you know often they're situated in environments that actually are full of books But at the same time, you can also see when a background has been really contrived.
4: The bookshelf is multifunctional. It is somehow neutral and professional, yet also personal. It conveys messages about who we are and who we want people to think we are.
3: Over 50 years ago, uh, uh, Irving Goffman, a sociologist, thought about how do we shift from thinking about the world as being like authentic or fake Uh, And instead, how is it more about being sincere or cynical? So he said, well, let's think about everything as a performance. Everything is like a stage play.
4: I actually
1: sit at that gray uh, chair, on that gray chair. But um, for the purposes of any kind of videoing, I like to have a nice colorful backdrop. So I use this, which
3: um, I change according to who I'm talking to, by the way. And so what's really important is whether people are believing in that stage play or not. In fact, uh, the term impression management comes from Goffman's work, where we look about how people are selectively revealing things about themselves. There are pundits who want to signal, like you know, their authority by displaying very big kind of historical books. Or one of the most popular ones that I've seen on a lot of bookshelves is uh, Thomas Piketty's Capital. Classics as well, so people who have, like, all the volumes of War and Peace or the original classics in, like, Russian or French and stuff like that.
4: Historically, in paintings and portraiture, carefully chosen and placed visual props have long been used to hint at someone's interests. They're in a world. Dogs can be symbols of fidelity or wealth. Fruit may represent bounty or desire. Specific books spell out a person's profession or confession. It wasn't until the 19th century that books for books' sake, large numbers of them took on their own symbolism.
1: The whole genre developed in the 19th century, for literate, secular, male figures. And the books lent a kind of gravitas and expertise for example, Edgar Degas, the French Impressionist, did a wonderful portrait of the critic and writer Edmond Duranty. He seems to be completely enveloped uh, by bookshelves. When Manet represented Émile Zola, the French 19th-century naturalist writer and art critic as well, he sits alongside a table which is piled with books. The same is true for Cézanne's portrait of Gustave Geoffroy,
4: The credibility that books offer has given rise to a cosmetic industry. Platforms like Zoom allow you to customise your background virtually, so you can adopt any bookshelf you like. If you want the real thing, but aren't too bothered about actually reading them, there are companies that sell books by the metre. They'll even curate your collection. Usually they cater to hotels, businesses and the film industry, But the pandemic has led to a spike in sales to individual households.
8: To me, those curated bookshelves and and shelfies and things, they treat books almost as a kind of interior design. And much as I love books that look beautiful, I actually think it's much more important that they get read. You know, I don't think they should be commodified to the point where their appearance is more important than the contents.
4: TV producers quickly learn that many of their interviewees working from home often don't have that many framing options. So we try and make suggestions, and we always ask if they have a bookshelf, because we know it works. I've become reliant on the bookshelf as backdrop for interviews, for lives, and for pieces to camera. I generally go for this one for practical reasons. It's the right height and the lighting works, even if some of the titles might give off the impression I'm trying a little bit too hard. We thought about using this collection of magazine covers, but British pop culture from the 90s isn't exactly the Listening Post vibe, not to mention what it says about me. These shelves say a lot about the other part of my life. The colours and the covers are great, but I'm not sure they scream journalism. And I'm not the only one reading into what's on the shelf. Authors have always had their critics. Now bookshelves do too. Bookcase credibility attracts hundreds of thousands of followers. It reviews and rates backdrops, comments on trends, and of course, draws all kinds of conclusions about the people parked in front of them. Jim sits in front of rows of his own books. Everything is al and al is everything.
8: These were simply the surplus that I didn't have room for in my library. I didn't really want to be showing them off. So they were just put up here out of the way.
3: It's an immediately relatable concept. Um, And it's also a concept that's quite fun bookshelves based on, you know, how messy or how clean they are, the colour schemes, the ways in which hardbacks and paperbacks are like, you know, separated or they're put together and what they say about a person.
4: Maya builds a Mondrian out of her books and white space, distilling credibility to its purest elements. I got quite a lot of flack for having a bookcase that was colour-coded. Some of the comments I've had are just like, really, people seem to be incandescent with rage, or use it as like a way in to then critique whatever my analysis is. I
8: think what makes bookcase credibility uh, so funny is the way that they extrapolate so much from so little information. One of their really brilliant tweets about Owen Jones, where he has a couple of bookshelves behind him, and they're described as being like, two henchmen who are sort of overseeing the conversation and, and policing it to make sure that it goes, the, goes Owen's way. And uh, I think they've got this wonderful way of sort of taking an element of truth and then just spinning it out into this, almost a kind of a fantasia about what the character's about.
4: Gideon Haig gives us a decent chance of guessing his favorite sport with this majestic display.
8: It simply because I face this way that you see my cricket books in the in the, in the background. And I think my head's sort of haloed by cricketers beginning with the letter B and C. But it's not partic- because I'm particularly interested in those ones, it just happens to be there at a roundabout head height.
4: Our presenter, Richard Gisbert, conducted interviews from home for the first nine months of the pandemic. He got the bookcase credibility treatment last June, Perhaps their way of declining our interview request. Richard Gisbert seeks to put us at ease, as if he's invited us back to his hotel room to see his credibility. If things go well, he might give us a song.
2: I mean, they, they read a lot into the acoustic guitar, which I never play. All I do is play my electric guitar, my Telecaster, but our cameraman wouldn't let me use that because he likes the wood grain in the shots. So, you know, we make compromises whenever we make television. It doesn't matter whether we're in a studio or we're at home. People draw these widespread conclusions, and there's very, very little flow that you or I can do about it.
4: So, Richard, do you agree with the credibility's assessment of you or do you think you want to contest it?
2: I would say their assessment would be harsh, a little snide, but ultimately fair. And finally, when capitalism gets stuck in the mud, the grounding of that container ship in the Suez Canal created an absolute meme fest online. There was something about those images, an absurdly large ship, Packed with cargo, grounded, somehow blocking an estimated 12% of global trade. Getting excavated by a miniature digger? There's never been a traffic jam quite like it. Which got one TV host and sports announcer thinking. John Hansen works in Chicago. He used to be a traffic reporter there. A radio voice advising drivers which routes to avoid. So he came up with a Suez traffic report. And while he's clearly out of his comfort zone, his geography needs a little work, he's got the format down. We'll see you next time here at the Listening Post.
3: Suez Canal traffic report ever given, ever stuck in just south of the fresh food market on 23 Joule. Nothing doing north or south. Let's head to the north. You can see Gaper's delays real heavy here, especially as you get closer to Great Bitter Lake where everyone's just stuck and bitter themselves. Heading up to the north, nothing doing here too. Breaks uh, all the way up to the Port Sayed. Same to the south too. Suez Gulf looking pretty heavy, nowhere going anywhere. And this extends all the way out to the Red Sea. Red Sea more like red brake lights for the as far as the eye can see. Now your alternates as we zoom in out here and look to the south around the Ethiopian coast. Booty, nothing doing there. We're going to have to go all the way around down south. Now, your alternate Madagascar, you can go left or right. Both lanes are open all the way around Cape Horn. Now, this will take you 10
4: days. It'll certainly save you the five or six. You'll be stuck there.